Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Today's Report Card episode is a little different from normal. It's not directly about education. Actually, it's about peer review, strong and weak link problems, and our biases in how we remember the past and look to the future. Even though these topics don't concern education directly, I nonetheless think they shed light on important issues in education practice, research, and policy. In particular, I think the discussion of strong and weak link problems provides a helpful conceptual framework for thinking about many of the biggest issues in education. The thing that ties these topics together is today's guest, Adam Mastriani. Adam is an experimental psychologist and the author of the bi-weekly newsletter, Experimental History. Adam, welcome to the report card. Thanks for having me. So first off, Adam, help me a little bit with this introduction. You're an experimental psychologist yes. and you're the writer behind Experimental History. Right. I mean, I think most of our audience probably doesn't even know what an experimental psychologist is. Uh, what do you do? <laughs> what I spend a lot of time doing is writing that newsletter. Uh, what an experimental psychologist does is basically all of psychology that isn't clinical. So anything that doesn't have to do with treating patients is the kind of stuff that I do, which I think of as experimental history as a way of understanding it, which is I put people in situations, record what happens, and then try to explain why they did what they did, which is the same thing a historian does, except instead of waiting for them to do it, I make the situations in which they do it and then try to understand why they did it. Okay. So that's manipulative, but I'll, I'll give you a pass. <laughs> um, and this is a pretty big bucket, right? Like yes. you can come at all kinds of problems for this. Yes, absolutely. So like some of the earliest work I did was putting people in a room and telling them, talk as long as you want to talk. And then afterward, I asked, did you talk as long as you wanted to talk? I wrote a paper called, do conversations end when people want them to? And the answer was no. So that's the kind of thing that I can do. I have a paper coming out in a little bit about how people think that people have gotten less moral over time, less kind, less nice, less honest, less good. I don't find any evidence that this is the case, and I try to figure out why they think that. So all of that falls under the the umbrella of doing experimental psychology. Okay, so you've written uh, recently on peer review, some interesting, and I'd call it a little provocative. I bet you got a little backlash for it. Sure did. Um, first, let's just set this up. I want two definitions for what peer review is. Give me the ideal definition, and then give me the real definition. Sure. The ideal definition is you do some research, you write it up, you send it to a journal, and then they send it to some anonymous peers who thoroughly vet everything that you've done. They read every word closely, they look at your data, they maybe even try to replicate something that you did, and then they give it a stamp of approval that says, this is science and true. That's the ideal definition. The real definition is you write up your research, you send it to a journal, the editor kind of glances at it and decides whether they just feel like sending it to uh, other people to look at. Those people then do whatever they want. They can read it closely. They can not read it closely. They're almost never going to look at the data. They probably won't even read every word of the paper. And then they will write up some comments, and that will decide whether the paper gets published or not. So it will get that stamp that says this is science and this is true. Whether it deserves that is another question. And, you know, you bring this on yourself, experimental history. So on the history side of this, this has not always been the case, right, this peer review system. Yeah. I think the um, the version or the story that a lot of people have in their heads, if they have any story in their heads, is, you know, sometime in like the 1600s or 1700s, you know, like the British Royal Society, they started doing this. And that's the way it's been since then. But in fact, if you look into the history of uh, scientific communication, it was really a diverse ecosystem of ways that people were publishing their results. There were things that looked a little bit like the peer review that we do today, but there were things like 
I sort of run a magazine and I'm actually asking scientists to write up what they're doing and I don't really give the thumbs up or thumbs down because I'm just really trying to fill pages or people sending letters to one another and sometimes those letters get published. Uh, it's really only in the 1960s and 70s that we see the system become universal that in order for something to be considered science, it has to go to a journal that has to do pre-publication peer review and only then when it comes out is it considered part of the scientific record. Okay, so we're at AEI, we care about markets, and there's a market implication here. So before we get too far into how well this works, there's sort of a locked up market for peer-reviewed research. Is that relevant? Like, does that have a play in this question? Yeah, so anyone at any point could do things in a different way. You know, there's no law against, uh, you know, publishing your research on the internet like I now do. It's purely norms and status enforced. So you will not get a job at a university if you don't take part in that system. Um, and so because of that, there can be all these weird distortions like it makes no sense that taxpayers pay for research to be done. The researchers then do it and then they sometimes pay to publish it. And then the, the public pays to read it. This, I think if you were building from scratch, if you were trying to do a startup that did this and we didn't have the system already, people go like, you're crazy. That would never work. But that's how it has historically evolved. And right now, I don't even remember all the things that are contrived to gate these huge bodies of research off. Because usually I have to ask one of my recently graduated RAs, <laughs> hey, can you get me this article so that I can read it? Um there's that market, right, for the paying, but there's also the market in academia, right? So you could do the exact same set of research. You could do every bit of the actual research and writing and just post it online and you would not get credit for it independent of the quality of that research. However, if you go through the peer review process, you sort of get the checkboxes that translate into professional positions. Yeah. And so this is a little bit different in different disciplines. So uh, like in computer science, it's much more the norm that you upload it to just a PDF server because things are moving so quickly. But in most disciplines, so for instance, in psychology, if what I have is a PDF on the internet of the research that I did, people go, oh, that's very nice. When are you going to publish it in a journal so that we can afford you the appropriate credit for it? And a big part of that is we look at the name of the journal to figure out how much we should give credit for the work. Which would make sense if there was sort of a perfect correlation between the name of the journal and how good and useful the research is. Which, there may be a non-zero correlation, but it certainly isn't the correlation that we sort of treat it as. Okay, so this system has costs, costs for participation, and so forth. As far as the costs, or maybe you want to talk about it as a tax on production, how does it affect the production of research? Yeah, so for one thing, one estimate of the amount of time that we spend peer-reviewing research every year is 15,000 years of, of collective effort. And if you think about the fact that these are scientists who are supposed to be you know, solving the big problems in the world, it seems like maybe a, a misuse of time, um, especially because a lot of this research will never go on to be cited, or at least cited by anyone other than the people who wrote it in the first place. But then I think there's the more important but less visible cost, which is when you are sitting in your office thinking of the things that you might study and do, you have in your head this idea that it has to come out in some format that's going to be publishable, that people are going to want to publish this. And I think this is a cost that's maybe impossible to account for, but I feel it as a researcher, or at least I felt it when this is what I used to do, that like, oh, I can't ask these questions because people won't like that. I can't do these studies in this way because people won't like I won't. I can't write this paper in this way because it won't come out. And so we have all this research that never gets done and never gets published because it would have to pass these gatekeepers who wouldn't like it. 
So that can shape the research, but I'm going to assume that peer review has some means of ensuring quality, improving quality. What's the influence that you think the peer review system as a whole has on the quality of research that gets put out? Sure. It's not zero. Um, so I think there's a an extremely low bar to clear, which is, do we sometimes catch some errors when we peer review a paper? And the answer is yes. Unfortunately, the, the answer is also not all that often. So there's been some studies done where... Um, are these peer-reviewed studies? Uh, I am happy to, to report that they are. Okay, so good. we know that we can good. trust them. And in fact, they were published in a very respected journal, the British Medical Journal. Uh, one of the former editors-in-chief in there got really interested in this idea of like, what are we doing when we peer-review a paper? And so they ran these studies where they deliberately inserted errors into papers, sent them out to their normal reviewers, then got the reviews back and just asked, how many of the deliberate errors did the reviewers catch? And the answer was, on average, about 25%. And these are major errors, like this study says it's a randomized controlled trial, but if you actually look at the methods, they didn't really randomize people to conditions. So the kind of thing that, like, this really invalidates the study, and we only catch that about 25% of the time. So that's a big problem. Not to mention, another way to think about this is when we catch people who are doing fraud, which does happen in science plenty of time, do we catch them at the peer review stage? That would be a natural place where they might get caught because that's supposed to be where we're catching the, the bad guys. I don't know if that's ever happened, but I know of zero stories where fraudulent uh, papers have been caught at the peer review stage. What normally happens is people publish papers for decades and then later someone from their lab realizes something's going on or someone tries to replicate one of the studies and they realize like, hold on a second, like this one doesn't add up. And then they realize, well, this one doesn't add up. In fact, dozens of these papers don't add up. So we would know that peer review is functioning better if, you know, sometimes you send it off to reviewers and the reviewers go, hey, wait a second, it looks like there's some fraud here. That just doesn't seem to happen. That happens much later after many papers have passed that process. But what about the actual process, right? So I have a paper and it's on, you know, whatever subject and I send it to a journal and the journal reviews it and then I'm assuming that they get helpful comments from reviewer number two and they, you know, they revise and they improve their work. So there's some sort of iterative element to this that should improve research as it goes through this process. No? Yes? It can. So reviewers sometimes give helpful comments. People sometimes revise their papers and make them better, all of which I think is a pretty low bar to clear for the amount of time and energy that we're spending doing this system. Although that's also not what always happens. Um, so for instance, if you get a paper rejected, um, the main thing that people do is reformat it for a different journal and send it out again. Uh, so when I was an undergrad, my advisor was like, look, there's a big stochastic element in publishing, meaning it's pretty random. So, you know, this time we sent the paper off, we got some reviewers who didn't like it. Next time we just might get reviewers who do like it. So there's not all that much incentive to make the paper better. Now, if we had gotten a comment back from a reviewer that we thought like, okay, obviously we should fix this thing. But if the reviewer is just like, ah, I just kind of don't like this. Well, then the best thing we can do is just spin the wheel again and see if we can get someone who likes it. And so that, that is, I think, the most common response uh, that people choose to do when they get a paper rejected is like, well, let's just try again. So, and I don't want to push you into overstating the problem. You're not saying that all peer-reviewed research is bunk and so forth. No. But when you say, well, part of peer-reviewed research is a numbers game, that sounds a little bit like like a problem. Not the numbers game of refining our estimates, but a numbers game of just keep submitting, baby. One of these times it's going to take off. Yeah. And it's hard to imagine the the kind of paper that that like eventually you can find somewhere that will take it. I mean, it might be a journal that no one wants to publish in, but you can just keep spamming it and eventually it might come out. It won't be in a place where you get a lot of credit for it. Sure. 
um, but it could be somewhere. And if you are not a part of these fields, you might not know that, for instance, in my field, psychological science is held in the highest esteem. The Journal of Psychology is not. Those sound pretty similar, and there's really no easy way, unless you are steeped in the culture of the field, to know that one of these is a big deal if you get published in it, and the other is not. Steeped in the culture of the field uh, sounds like a lot of what's going on here. Is this kind of an open secret among academics? <laughs> like, is this are most people like, no, it actually it works great. What are you talking about? Or would you say, you know, I know it's a non-scientific survey, but just when you're talking to folks, are they like, yeah, these problems are clearly evident? Yeah, the number one thing that academics love to do is complain about academia. So everyone has a story about, oh, we get these stupid reviewers. They didn't re actually read the paper. It got rejected for stupid reasons. Can you believe how long it takes to get papers reviewed? What I don't find a lot is some curiosity about, like, well, why do we do it this way? I think part of that comes from this sort of unquestioned belief that this is the way that it's always been, that this is how we do research. But I think some of it comes from just not understanding that, like, this is arbitrary, the way that we do this. This, this wasn't given by God. We chose in many small ways over decades that this is the way that we do it. And we can do it some other way. And really what I hope to do is, is add back in some of the diversity that we have in the way that we do research and communicate it. So it's not to say that I think like, you know, let's burn down all the peer-reviewed journals. I think they are optimized for solving a certain kind of problem. But the thing is, like, you can't be optimized for solving every kind of problem. So some research is better done in a different way um, with a different set of incentives. And so that's part of why I write this newsletter is because I can do the kinds of things that I couldn't do and publish in a journal because I'd have to you know, be way more boring and follow more of the rules that uh, I sometimes think are counterproductive. What's the alternative? So one of the alternatives is to, you know, post it on the Internet. Yeah. That seems like a tough alternative for most folks. But what visions of alternative pathways might there be? And these don't have to be total replacements, right? You just said we don't have to bag the whole system. Sure. What are alternative pathways that might be fruitful? Yeah, it's it's funny to think about this because I don't think about it in sort of a top-down way where, I mean, there's no like emperor of science who could decide like the system's going to work in this way rather than the other way. All we have is a bunch of individuals who are trying to figure out what to do with the incentives that they have and the structures that they live in. So I think posting on the internet for some people is a much better option. Um, but posting on the internet can look, uh, can manifest in a lot of different ways. So you can post it on the internet and you can ask people to review it. You can, or they can volunteer to review it. You can post those reviews. You can show how you, um, updated it. Um, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with peer review. I think it, it is the universal and pre-publication part, um, that does the most damage that nothing is true until we've got, you know, three strangers glance at it and then, uh, stamp it. And I do want to, draw a contrast here because you're saying, well, we're a bunch of individuals acting, but the alternatives may stem from a bunch of individual non-orchestrated actions, but they're to some degree up against an oligopoly, right? Sure. And oligopoly is... Uh, it's it's like a monopoly, but with a few more people. Right. Um, that like a, a few entities run everything. Right. And they're sort of, they have the trappings of, of power. So it's pretty difficult, I think, for these alternatives to gain traction against the established peer review process. Yeah. What if what you want to do is like unseat the universities, I think that's very difficult. They, you know, they have huge endowments, many alumni, but if what you want to do is scientific research that is actually useful, I actually think it's not that hard to beat what we do right now working in a different system. So like, yeah, you might not be on a path to be a tenured professor at a big name university, 
But you could still actually publish research that is very influential and that affects a lot of people, in part because you aren't working in the shackles of trying to get this into, you know, nature or science or cell or whatever. I think that can happen. I think that actually is happening and will happen more. That if you look at the quality of the stuff that we are putting in these journals, I just don't think it's actually that hard to beat doing something else. You might have to find some other way of paying your paycheck and getting your health insurance. Uh, but I think that's actually a separate problem. It's not a scientific problem. It's a sociological one. Does it influence like what we study? Is what we do in these journals just interesting enough, <laughs> right? I mean, are we fencing off some things that we should probably have somebody working on, but we're kind of disqualifying? Totally, yes. So this is true both politically. So there are political questions that, that people have preferred and dispreferred answers, which of course we talk about a lot. But I, I actually am more interested in the kinds of questions that like just strike people as weird. And that is part of why it'd be hard to publish it. So on experimental history uh, late last year, I published um, a paper that would have been hard to publish in a journal just because what we were doing was strange. Um, it didn't really connect to the literature. We could have come up with some you know, kind of like fake connection, which right. is what we would have had to do if we wanted to get it published. But we were just trying to answer this question that like didn't kind of fit into the tapestry of what we were doing. And I think if a lot of people had seen it, they'd go like – well, but how does this build on what we've been doing so far? And our whole point was like, we don't think this is really building on what we've been doing so far. This is just a question sort of off in left field. So those sort of things don't fit in well with a journal system. And before we started taping, you said that one of the other things you do is you do sort of improv yes. and, and some things, which is not typically something you put on your CV for yeah. an academic uh, posing. But most of this work is boring, too. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty hard to read. It's almost like an art form to make – like, let's pull all personality out of it. AI-generated papers are probably more interesting than most scientific papers, right? Yeah. Explain how that functions. So part of that is standards that we put on ourselves that, like, no one ever really tells you that when you write a scientific paper, you need to be really boring and have this kind of fake view from nowhere sort of voice. But when you read papers, that's what they do. And so people kind of do this pattern matching thing where, like, okay, so that's the way you write a paper – but some of it is actually enforced by reviewers that when they read your paper, they go, well, this doesn't sound like the way that we say things. Um, so I have had reviewers say, this paper is too fun. And it wasn't even like, you know, I had some paragraph long digression that like ended in a lame pun. It was sort of like I was using some examples that were just the slightest bit jaunty. Right. Um, and they're like, I don't like that. And that's truly all it is. It's not like we have some good reason why this paper should be more boring. Or another example, I once fought with a journal that wanted to abbreviate, whenever I used the word years, they wanted to abbreviate it to the letter Y. And this wasn't even in like, you know, statistics. This right. was like in the introduction of the paper where we're like for the past 40 years and they want to write for the past 40 Y. And I had to send them an email and be like, please, can I use the word that I wrote, which is years, that I know it's not a huge deal, but someone might read this paper and not immediately know what that is. Can we just spare the extra couple letters so that people know what I'm talking about? And they were like, why? This is our house style. And I'm like, well, because I want people to read it. And eventually they, they relented. <laughs> but just the idea that there's people whose job it is to like take something that is more understandable and turn it into something less understandable, I think is, is crazy. Right. But these are the things that scientists should spend their time squabbling over, I think. Right. I, you have a, another paper. I guess it's a post. I don't know what to call it. But uh, science is a strong link problem. And the strong link, weak link differentiation comes into play here. Yeah. What's a strong link problem and what's a weak link problem? So th this is a way of, uh, of diagnosing problems in the world. So a weak link problem 
is a problem where the overall quality depends on the worst thing in it. So better told through an example. So uh, like food safety at the grocery store is a weak link problem. You don't really care how safe the safest food is. You care how safe the least safe food is. So as you're walking around, you want to be pretty certain that no matter what you pick up and put in your shopping cart, it's not going to give you E. coli. This is a weak link problem. Like we want to make sure that the most dangerous thing is not dangerous. And these problems I think are pretty familiar to us. And it's easy to assume that every problem is like that. But in fact, some problems work the opposite way where the overall quality depends on how good the best thing is. So for instance, winning the Olympics is a strong link problem. If I'm running the um, American shot put team, I don't care about the thousandth best shot putter in the country. I don't care about making that person better. I want to find the top five shot putters and I want to make them better. Uh, I get no benefit from uh, moving someone who's mediocre to pretty good or from pretty good to very good. I only benefit from moving the very best to the even better. And it turns out, I think, that science is one of these strong link problems. That uh, if you look back at the history of science, all of the, the, uh, the ideas that weren't true, that went nowhere, they over time went nowhere. All they did was waste our time and resources, which is a cost. But overall, what really mattered was the things that were true and that were useful. So an example of this is um, Isaac Newton, you know, developed mechanics, pretty useful, still using that. Also had a recipe for the Philosopher's Stone. Turned out, wasn't useful, didn't really go anywhere. And I don't think there's any benefit in going back in time and stopping Newton from developing the Philosopher's Stone recipe. Uh, it wasn't like this caused a lot of damage or that we're still trying to make Philosopher's Stones. We figured out that you can't make one, and so we stopped what doing it. What is a Philosopher's Stone supposed to do again? I don't know. Something magic, give you yeah, eternal like life. alchemy or something. He was really yeah. interested in alchemy, wasn't he? Uh, yes. Like turning yeah. lead into gold. Yeah, which like would have been great. That uh, would be great. Yeah, and if you'd been able to do that, uh, that would have been a strong link. It probably would have stuck around. Yes, exactly. Okay. We'd have a lot more gold today. Although, at this point, we'd care less about gold. But yes. nonetheless, go, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Um, so I think science is one of these strong link problems. And when you see it that way, a lot of the things that we do in science make a lot less sense. So, for instance, universal prepublication peer review is a solution to a weak link problem. What we're trying to do here is set some kind of minimum standard and make sure that everything meets it and kick out the things that don't. But it turns out the things that barely make it above that standard really don't go anywhere. It's not like we end up using them. They probably don't get cited. They, they don't. Nothing really builds on them. Whereas the few things that are really useful, like everything comes to hinge on them. And so in my own field in psychology, I think there's maybe a dozen things, even from the past generation, that are these super strong links that we build a lot of stuff on. And almost everything else, it kind of didn't matter whether it happened or not. I think it's a fairly extreme position in my field, but I think it's part, partly for sociological reasons, that it's like it's hard to accept uh, that what you, most of what you do over the course of your life might not really matter. That is a fear that I run from every day. Uh, and my goal is to produce these things that, uh, or at least try to produce a strong link rather than uh, just spamming out weak links, which is what I think a, a journal incentivizes you to do. So let me repeat back what I've heard to make sure that I, I've got this. A weak link problem is a situation where the harms stem from low quality or, or harmful things. Yes. So we really don't want medication that doesn't you know, work as it's supposed to or is mislabeled. That's a real problem. Yep. A strong link problem is where we really need a couple of things to really work. We want to optimize for that. The downside risk of those things isn't important, and it really has to satisfy both of those things. So the yes. medication doesn't necessarily translate to a solely strong link problem, right? We don't just want things that work well. We still want things to not 
Yes. Right? Like harm people because those harms are present. So these aren't mutually exclusive. Is that right? Um, they can depend a lot on your particular situation. So medication is a good example. If you just have some kind of you know routine ailment, if you have a common cold or something, you'd like to be able to, or maybe a little worse than that, and it's something you would go to the doctor for, you would like to live in a weak link problem world where I can kind of pick any doctor and I know they're going to meet some basic threshold and they're going to give me medication that won't harm me and they'll make me better off because I don't really need that outlier upside outcome. But if you're diagnosed with a terminal disease, for instance, now you don't want the doctor who barely made it across the threshold who's not going to harm you. You need a miracle. And so now you probably don't like that there are so many restrictions on the kind of medications that get to market because you're willing to take the risk because the downside is, well, you were going to die anyway. So I don't really care about being harmed. I'm willing to take a much higher risk of harm if I can save my own life. You might want the doctor who's working on the side on the philosopher's stone because, exactly. uh, you know, if, if he's at that level, that may be what you're looking for. Yeah. Um, OK, so this is an education podcast. Sure. So you, you knew this was coming. <laughs> I really think the peer review and the illustration that the weak link, strong link, uh, sort of heuristic brings to that is, is helpful. But oftentimes when we're thinking in education, we're, we're thinking about things in different ways. So I'm going to throw out a couple of these and ask you to sort of shine this weak link, strong link heuristic on, on them as you would. So one is school choice, right? Charter schools, right? The animating idea behind charter schools is, hey, let's let a thousand flowers bloom because we want to find some things that really work and they work differently than a public school system that to some degree, and this is just a theory behind it, we can argue about it and do ad nauseum, but public schools are, there's a little homogeneity issue that really kind of keeps them down. So that's sort of a differentiation between the, the strong link solution and a weak link solution. But we still have concerns here, right? Like I don't want, we don't want charter schools educating students and just rolling these kids under the wheels of progress. Well, you can think about this in sort of education practice more broadly, right? So for instance, I can think of a, a way where you would say, uh, we really want to promote, we want to get some of our students to really hit the highest highs in math. So we're going to take them through sort of one class and if they can make it through high above the average, we're going to put them through another ringer. And those ringers, which are not super egalitarian, but we're yeah. going to try and push these kids to see where the horizon lies on how strong uh, we can get them. I think oftentimes that's not how charter schools, public schools in general are sort of structured. So when we're in a situation like education, and I'm interested in the research, but I think that that generally applies like the other research does. Really, when we think about how do we structure schools, how do we want to think about these sort of challenges, what does the weak link, strong link analysis highlight for you? Yeah. So it highlights two things. The way that you would see this problem depends on, one, a value judgment, and second, an empirical fact. So the value judgment here, which I think there's no objective answer to, is just which do you care about more? Like, are you really frightened by the idea that a school system might not serve a student well and they might not come out with the skills that they need to succeed in society? Or do you think like, look, I actually don't think you need all that many skills to succeed in society. I think it's a pretty low bar. You don't need to be able to solve a triangle. You just need to be able to file your taxes on time and understand how to work a voting booth. So I'm not so worried about that. Or are you really worried about that? That's a value judgment that I think comes down to an individual preference. 
The other is an empirical fact, which we may or may not know. I think we don't know, but which is which actually benefits society more. So if you could wave a magic wand and either take the 10% lowest performing students in math and boost all of their scores 10%, or if you could take the top 10% students in math and boost all of their scores 10%, if you could look around society, which one of those would be better? I actually don't know the answer to that question. It may come down to like, well, what math are we teaching them and how much does it really matter? It might be that we're teaching this really abstract math that it kind of doesn't matter that well how you do it unless you are you know using the, those abstract symbols and whatever you do that like we actually really care about making better mathematicians and better people who are better at manipulating abstract symbols and so it doesn't really matter if you make the worst people better at it or it might be that like no actually this is really useful and applicable math and so if you make the worst people better at doing it those are all people who file their taxes on time or uh, build houses that don't fall over um, or things. I don't know the answer to that question, but those are the two things you have to answer in order to figure out if you're trying to solve as a weak link or a strong link problem. And from a society-wide view, that makes a lot of sense. But we also have these individual levels. So this is what obviously distinguishes it from the peer review, where if the bad if the bad papers get crushed, who cares? Yeah. Bad papers, let them yeah. get crushed. In fact, we like that, right? That's a feature, not a bug. But there's an individual utility question here. And that is if we set up systems to sort of operate on a weak link footing, then we may give short shrift to the utility that some students might benefit yeah. had they had something that would, you know, push them through a crucible of academic achievement that would make them much stronger in the end. And there's a, you know, you flip it and you've got a different set of trade-offs. So at the individual level, there's some consequences yeah. from how we structure schools, uh, school systems or individual schools and how we structure schools within those systems as strong link or weak link problems. Totally. And I think a thing that people don't realize is that you can't solve these problems simultaneously, that, that they, they are hydraulically related, that the things that you do to solve a weak link problem are often the opposite of the things you do to solve a strong link problem. So weak link problems tend to benefit from more intervention, professionalization, regularization, like standards, checklists, because we need to make sure that every single thing passes at least this basic threshold. Those are all things that can prevent the best from doing their best. So you hear stories all the time about people who go on to do extraordinary things who are like, yeah, I totally flunked through school because all the homework seemed dumb to me. Like I didn't respect the teachers because I felt like I knew more than them. What we would do to benefit that student is not what we would do to benefit the student who is struggling in those classes because they don't understand what's going on. And there's there's no one thing that we can do for both of those people that solves both of those problems simultaneously. That's why it's important to figure out which of these problems that you're trying to solve. And, like, it might be that I have both weak link and strong link concerns, and what I have to do is balance off, like, the weak link interventions that I do against the freedom that I want to allow to so try to solve the strong link problem. Yeah, I really like this heuristic because it lays bare some of the trade-offs that we're often fighting about without the words to kind of like get right yeah. down to it. I swear, I think half of graduate school is getting nomenclature to actually talk about ideas <laughs> yeah. that everybody actually could understand if they just had a word for it. Yeah. Uh, so I think this is really helpful and, and interesting. And we'll link to all these things in the show notes. Uh, Adam, in the middle of these, we do a section called Grade It!, and you're a professor used to grading, yeah, and yeah. we don't grade on a curve, so we want right. we want you to take it hard. All right, let's start off with this: the quality of the average conversation. <laughs> I give that a an A, because so I've run studies on conversations where I have people 
uh, report on the last conversation they had either with someone they know really well or I have them have a conversation with someone that they don't know well at all. I ask them afterward, how much did you enjoy that? One to seven. And the average rating is like a 5.6. So maybe that's more of a B plus, but grading against the expectation that people have, which is that these are going to be really bad, they turn out to be so much better than people expect. All right. Writing on Substack. Um, like across all of it, all at once? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's a, a strong link problem. So I think you can ignore most of the stuff that's bad and the stuff that's good is really good. I'd give it an A minus. A minus. Okay. Um, the quality of science writing. Oh man. Um, I'd give that one an F. <laughs> it probably gives, I mean, try opening up a paper. I mean, first of all, good luck trying to access it. If your institution didn't pay a million dollars to Elsevier, but, uh, yeah, it makes me want to die uh, trying to get to the end of these papers. And it's it horrible. doesn't have to be no. that this way, does <laughs> no. it? No, I think it's a total lie that, like, scientific papers must be really boring be- because the things that we're dealing with are inherently boring. I'm like, no, <laughs> no, they're not. They're, they're so interesting. But, like, this is what I think of as, like, a moat-widening tactic that, like, to widen the moat around the ivory tower, we have to make sure that people can't really understand what we're doing so that they respect it more. Um, yeah, F. All right, we talked a little bit about creativity and originality in research. How about creativity and originality in pop culture? Um, so I, I'd give it a, a C. So I, I wrote this piece called Pop Culture Has Become an Oligopoly, just showing that in movies, music, video games, TV shows, and books, more and more of the market goes to fewer and fewer people, so an oligopoly. So it's not just one person a monopoly, but multiple people an oligopoly. So it used to be that like 25% of the top grossing movies were, you know, retreads, reboots, um, cinematic universe expansions, and now it's more like 75%. So there is still unique stuff out there, but it's just not the thing that becomes the most popular. The notion that scientific progress has slowed because there's, you know, less to find out <laughs> or th- it's harder to find new things out. F. Uh, so I, I wrote a piece about this called like, Ideas Aren't Getting Harder to Find and Anyone Who Tells You Otherwise is a Coward and I Will Fight Them. Uh, I think precisely because the evidence that we have that things are, are getting more difficult to discover, I think has very good alternative explanations. I think it'd be extremely weird if we all just happened to be the first humans who were right about the fact that, like, well, all the low-hanging fruit has been picked. Because this is something you can find people saying since science began. No, I think, we, uh, I think we're just beginning, especially in my field. Reading the news. F- uh, <laughs> this is like a great, a greatest hits of experimental history. So, uh, so I've got a piece called reading the news is a, is a new smoking that I don't do it anymore. I still know what things are going on. It's difficult not to, but I found all it did was make me anxious and angry. Um, and when I stopped doing it, it felt like, um, a war that used to be fought in my head was being fought on Neptune instead, which is a very good feeling. And it frees up my time to do things that I actually think, uh, I can make a difference in acting in a movie. <laughs> um, I give it a B plus. I was at a movie called uh, Love, Weddings, and Other Disasters, which is a 3% on Rotten Tomatoes. Run out. Run uh, out now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Please do. I probably get like four cents if you do, which is it's a, a really bad movie. But I think the most interesting thing about it is some people really like it, which I think is, is a helpful way of thinking about human diversity, that even something that seems to me so objectively bad Humans are so diverse that a few of them will still say, like, I really enjoyed that movie. That was a real lesson for me. 10% of survey respondents will say, uh, yes, do whatever you ask them, right? Totally, yes. There you go. Yeah. All right, last one. The concept of replication. Um, I give it a a C because, um, so I think replication is good 
for basically strong link work. What we tend to do when we replicate studies is we sort of do a scattershot thing. They're like, well, these are easy to replicate, so we'll do that. Or I feel like replicating this thing, so I'll do that. Or I sort of have some personal animus against this finding, so I'll do that. I think often that doesn't really help anything. Uh, What we really want to do is figure out, like, what are the cornerstones that we're really building on? And let's kick them and see if they turn to dust or not. And that's generally not the approach that we've taken. So I think replicating things is great when you care that they happen again. All right. I wanted to get to a couple of other papers. And I will admit that for listeners who are looking for the next solution to education problems, these are a little bit far afield from that, but they're also very interesting. (laughs) One, you wrote... You're probably wrong about how things have changed. Yeah. And the other one, which I think is connected, is things could be better. And just a quick unpaid ad for experimental history. These are they're very readable. They're not <laughs> short, but they're, yeah. they're readable and interesting and funny. In many cases, I laughed out loud. Um, but let's start with uh, you're probably wrong about how things have changed. How'd you start out on this trail? Spite. So for years, I'd had this feeling that people would be like, ah, oh, it didn't used to be like this. And I go, how do you know? Like, how do you possibly know what the world was like in the 1950s? You watched Mad Men? Like, what? Uh, the world is really complicated, and getting a view into the past is so difficult. How can you be so certain? And I think people's theories about how things have changed are really important because if you think things have changed in a certain way, you think that, for one thing, things are changeable, that we did something or something happened that produced some durable difference in the world. Which also means that you think that, like, well, we could move it back or or you think that, like, something's getting worse, whether or not it really is. And so I ran the set of studies where I got a set of uh, over 50 major public opinions, things like people's views on abortion and racism and sexism and climate change and gun control. And I showed people the actual public opinion question that had been asked in some cases, you know, from the 60s until now, in some cases uh, more recent than that. And I just I showed them the question. I was like, what do you think people said to this? And the earliest year in which it was asked, like what percent of people said that, you know, that they would, for instance, vote for a black person for president if your party nominated them and they were qualified for the job? And how do you think people answered it in the most recent time? OK, so let me repeat this back to you to make sure that our, our listeners are getting this. You went to people on public opinion questions for which you had data over yes. time. Yes. And you said, hey. If at the beginning of this public opinion data, what do you think people would have said? So you got new votes on yep. what people thought it would have been yep. and what they think it would have been today. So yes. you can measure how much they thought each of these issues might have changed. Yes, okay. exactly. Keep exactly. Going. So like, would you vote for a black person for president? And so when I show people that question, my earliest data comes from 1978. I ask people, what percent of Americans do you think said they would vote for a black person for president? And people say like about 25%. And then I'm like, okay, how about in the most recent year? And they go about 75% in 2010. In reality, it started at 75% and then went to 95%. And of course, you could say, well, are all those people telling the truth? Like maybe when they actually got into the voting booth, they wouldn't have done it. All totally true. However, what people think is, you know, back in the 70s, people would go like, well, I would never vote for a black person for president. And it turns out that even back then, that was not a socially acceptable thing to say. I think this should, should change your view of how like racism has changed in America over time that like it wasn't this cartoony past where there were a bunch of people uh, going like I'm a white person and I hate black people. Like it was already much more subtle than that. Obviously, there are people who did, but like it wasn't this version that, that we think that it was. And if you don't get how these things have changed, you probably don't understand how to change things. So another one is people's belief in climate change. So 
we started asking about this uh, in 1990 was just, do you think it's happening? And in 2000, are you worried about it? These are flat over time, about uh, like in the 60 percent of Americans believe in it and, and are worried about it. And so all the stuff that people have done that like we need to make people believe in it more, we need to make people more worried about it. None of that really seemed to do much, which would also change your theory of well, what are we doing? What are we trying to do here? What problem are we trying to solve? So this is pretty recent history. And you're sort of I don't know if it's conjecture, but you're, the sort of lesson to take away from this isn't, well, these things aren't big deals. The lesson that people should understand for it is you probably don't reconstruct the past in a reliable way. Yes. And that means that your understanding of the trajectory of things now is also probably misplaced. And yes. that could be a problem on a number of levels. Totally. So I found that one heuristic I think people use to try to answer these questions is, well, I generally believe that the past was more conservative politically and the present is more liberal. If you look at these 50 opinions that I have and if you ask people which side of this is more liberal and which side is more conservative, it is the case that attitudes have shifted more in the liberal uh, direction, but just nowhere near as much as people think that they actually have. So that does seem to be a useful heuristic for reconstructing the past. But like every stereotype, often there's something that's true in there uh, and then you rely on it too much and you turn it into a bias. Uh, And I think that's what people are doing, too. Another thing I think they're doing is anchoring too much on events in the world. So one of the few that goes in the opposite direction where people think that attitudes um, by their own definition of what's liberal and conservative have gotten more conservative. People think that we are less open to immigration today than we were uh, in the 80s. In fact, it's gone the other way. I think the reason was Donald Trump got elected president and people go, well, we elected the guy who said uh, we shouldn't have immigration. That must mean that we're way less in favor of immigration today than we were before that happened which is a totally reasonable theory, but this is also why you can't just read the news and figure out how opinions are changing because things are more complicated than that. And when we talk about departures here, we're going to be talking about bias, right? Like if yeah. you thought, well, yeah, it was it was super conservative before and now it's really liberal, then your bias might be, well, I got the direction right, but I overestimated the magnitude of the change over time. Yeah. Typically speaking, Where's the bias in what you found? Usually on most items, people thought that things had changed more than they actually had. And more specifically, they thought that that things had uh, had changed more in the liberal direction than they actually had. They still actually underestimate a little bit how liberal attitudes are today. So the really the mistake that they're making is thinking the past was far more conservative than it actually was. But there are also items where people get the direction of change entirely wrong. So For instance, attitudes toward gun control. People think that people are more in favor of gun control today than they were in the 80s or 90s. In fact, it goes the other way around. And I think what people are doing is looking at all the mass shootings and school shootings and go, well, those make people more in favor of gun control. They don't do that. And why they don't do that, I don't have an answer to that question. That's a totally reasonable thing to assume from looking at the world. It also does not match up with the way people's opinions have actually changed. Do you have any idea on how people seeing that this bias is relatively common might push back on it in their own yeah. views. I mean, like, how do we say, oh, man, I should do a little reconstruction on my conception <laughs> of how things are moving and what the past was like? Yeah, I think you can do two things. One is it's so easy to get this feeling of certainty that the way things are now isn't the way that things used to be. And I think whenever you feel that way, you should ask yourself, do I have any evidence that that's the case? Like, what am I drawing this on? Like, a few things I remember from when I was six, like 
uh, watching Happy Days uh, on TV? Like, what what is that? And then if you really want to know the answer, we actually do have tons of good data on this. Like, Pew and Gallup have been collecting this for decades. I mean, a hobby of mine is I just look through that stuff. They go like, whoa, people believe this back? Like, there was a, a study done during the Vietnam War where people were asked, like, you know, if your commander told you to execute civilians, do you think you would do it or would you disobey orders? And a majority of people said, like, yeah, I would do it. I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> like, wow. And people said that to a, a survey taker, which means, like, they probably meant it, right? There's uh, no upside to saying that. No. <laughs> no. I, yeah. They're like, wow. I'm a guy who really follows orders. Aren't you, uh, aren't you pleased? Um so, yeah, I think there's a lot to learn in just peeking back and seeing, like, what opinions do people express in the past? This other piece you wrote, things could be better. Things could be better. Again, what would you set out to find? <laughs> this, is this is really interesting stuff. Yeah. And this is one of those things that if you set out to do this, it'd be pretty hard to tie this to another frame of reference. Well, I'm following up on the literature yeah. on things could be better. Yes. Right? No. This, yeah. this is kind of a wild hair idea. Kind of a nutty idea, quite frankly, yes. but it's pretty interesting after you run through all what you did. So explain it to Yeah. Me. So this one actually came a little bit out of thinking about education specifically. So uh, my friend Ethan and I, who's also a psychologist, we were sitting at a diner eating omelets, and we were like, why do people think that education's bad? Everybody's complaining about education all the time, but it seems so much better now than it was a generation ago when, uh, you know, the nun would wrap the back of your hands if you didn't remember your times tables. Like, we seem to be doing better than that. So, like, why are people so mad about it? Maybe it's because it's so easy to imagine how education could be better because we could just imagine, well, what if teachers just, like, did a better job teaching? And, like, what if students just learned? And, like, all these things are easy to imagine, whether or not they're actually likely to happen. And that's why it seems bad. And so we had this theory that maybe the way that people judge how good or bad something is is how easy it is to imagine it being better or worse. If it's easy to imagine it being better, you say it's not very good. If it's easy to imagine it being worse, um, you say it's great. And so we ran these studies where we got a collection of things that people think about in their everyday lives, like education or politics, but also like your toothbrush and like your desk. We had people tell us, like, what are you thinking about right now? And then we just said, like, okay, um, your toothbrush, how could it be different? People typed it out, and we showed that back to them, and we said, okay, if it were different in this way, would it be better or worse or just uh, neutrally different? And people overwhelmingly told us, I was imagining how it could be better. Okay, better. so let me just repeat this back because I want people to catch this. Yeah. You asked, hey, what topics might we ask about? You didn't get that out of your head. You right. sort of got harvested yep. that. And then you asked – how might these things be different? Yes. Right? So that's kind of a neutral, just like might go up, might go down, whatever. Yep. And then you showed them back to the same respondent and said, is this change, this difference that you came up with? Yes. Is it an improvement? Is it neutral? Is it worse? Yes. Okay, keep going. Yes, exactly that. Um, and so for every single item that we tested, people told us, I, I imagined how it could be better. Okay, and this was true for every, even things were already really good. Uh, so we, we later asked in the study, how good is this thing right now? The thing that got the highest rating was pets. People love their pets. Uh, but when we asked people how could pets be different, they said like, oh, they cannot poop on the carpet so much. They cannot shed. Another one was love. We asked people, how could love be different? And they said like, there could be more of it. <laughs> like, it could be easier to get. So, so we're like, okay, well, maybe asking people how things could be different Maybe that's a leading question. Maybe, you know, no one is trying to make things worse. So maybe people interpreted our question as, you know, how could this be better? So we asked people like, OK, if we asked you, how could uh, this be better or worse or worse or better? Or how could it be different? What do you think we want from you? And people did tell us like, OK, if you ask me different, I think that you probably want improvements. If you ask me better or worse, I think you want a mix of both. 
So we're like, okay, great. That changes the pragmatics of the question. Let's run that question and see if it makes no difference. It made no difference. So we asked the same items. How could this be better or worse? People told us better. When we asked people, have you thought recently about how things could be better or worse? Everybody says yes. We asked, what were you thinking about? They tell us better. Uh, we asked a sample of uh, a Polish adults because um, they just happen to be accessible to us in English. Same thing. We translated the study into Mandarin Chinese. We asked uh, a sample of uh, Chinese adults living in China. Same thing. Every item, people are telling us how it could be better. So this seems to be something that people do naturally and do all the time. And we think that this might be part of how the hedonic treadmill works. So this is this idea in psychology that once you're moderately happy, it's really hard to get happier than that. You just adjust to whatever comes. How does that adjustment actually happen? I don't think we, we have a good explanation for it. One might be that if you're always imagining how things could be better, even if things get better, you might not feel better. So you imagine like, oh, man, my apartment would be better if it were bigger. You move into a house and you go, ah, it'd be nice if uh, I had a hot tub. You get a hot tub. Like, ah, well, this could be better than I have two hot tubs, right? It just never stops right. if you always have this tendency. Yeah, sort of like uh, how much money is is enough money? Yeah. Just a few more dollars, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can see how that works. Yeah. Um. So what? I mean, so it's interesting. It's really interesting. It's a fun read. I really liked it. But, I mean, so what? And maybe there's not anything here, but like, what does this mean for understanding humans? What might it mean for, for policies? And you get total bonus points. If you can tell us how this <laughs> comes back to the education where it sort of started. Like when we think about things, how does this, you know, our constant concentration on optimistic change that we would expect, how does it matter? Yeah. A few ways. Scientifically in psychology, we really rarely find things that are true for almost everybody. Even when we find that something is true on average, often it's like, well, okay, 60% of people showed this effect. For us, it was 90% of people um, showed this effect. So this seems to be something um, that is pretty true about the way human imagination works. And however we figure out how the mind works, it has to incorporate this fact that people have this bias. So that's scientifically. It, for policy and specifically for education, it suggests that people have this very strong tendency to imagine how can we change this to make it better, which is maybe not always the best way to be thinking about how to solve problems. Sometimes you have to think about ways of preventing something from getting worse. Education might be that way. I don't know. But it's not the way that people naturally think. And I think actually part of our original thought about this was right, that um, it's so easy for people to imagine how education could be better. It's one of the items that we tested. You know, like, oh, like... We could teach people the right things instead of the wrong things. But something being easy to imagine doesn't mean that it's possible to do. I actually have to benchmark this against like, okay, well, it's easy to imagine like all the teachers being good, but how could you actually take the steps to make that happen? And so it might not actually be that useful to have these sort of pie in the sky ideas about how things could be improved if they have no relationship to a series of steps that we could take to actually make them better. Adam Mastriani. Thanks for coming on the report card. Interesting work. And folks can read about it every other Tuesday on yep. Experimental History. Yep. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guest, Adam Mastriani. We'll include a link to The Rise and Fall of Peer Review. Science is a strong link problem. You're probably wrong about how things have changed. And things could be better. As well as some of Adam's other work in the show notes. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, take a moment to leave us a review so more people will find the show. You can send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. 
That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus. 